Well, welcome. I'm excited to go uh, back into the book of Philippians as we're in part three of this four-part four series that I've called Joy Full. As we look through the book of Philippians, there's four chapters. It takes me four weeks. This is the third week in this series, so we're on chapter three. If you have a Bible and brought one with you and you know where Philippians is, I encourage you to turn there. All the scripture look at on the screen, and it's also on our app. If you've not taken advantage of that app yet, I encourage you to download that. We do a lot of communication through that. You can communicate with us through that. And all the, everything we talk about, my Bible studies that I do online are there. The messages are there. Please take advantage of that. In this series, I started a couple weeks back in chapter 1, and I made the comment that most of Christian characteristics are evident and seen in another person when you're up close and personal. When you're up close and personal, you can see uh, how they live out peace. When you're up close and personal, you can see how they exhibit mercy and grace to other people. But there's one characteristic that you don't have to be up close and personal to see, and it's this character characteristic of joy. You can see joy in a person from afar. Part of our problem, though, when we talk about joy, is a misunderstanding of what joy is. Most people, would, if we were trying to define joy, would use words like, well, you can see it by the smile on one's face. And joy may produce a smile, but joy is exists even without a smile. We would describe a joy as happiness, and certainly happiness is part of joy, but joy is beyond just happiness. We would say joy is is, is the attitude of peace, and that's certainly true. But, but, but as we study the book of Philippians, we start to understand what joy is, because the book of Philippians has kind of the spine that runs through it, this element of joy. There's four chapters in the book, and I think there's 14 times Paul writes about joy, joyful and rejoicing. 14 times in four chapters. That's a lot. The interesting thing is that this, this letter to the people of Philippi was written by Paul while he was in a jail cell in Rome. And so you'd think if you're writing from a jail cell, you could write about a lot of things. Joy probably isn't on the top of your list, but it was for Paul. And so we're going to look at chapter 3, and I'm probably only going to look at about four verses in chapter 3. There's a lot there, but I'm going to start with verses 1 and 2, uh, actually 1, 2, and 3, and then we're going to jump down to verse 20. And so we're going to get a glimpse of uh, what Paul's talking about as far as joy in the chapter of chapter 3, but we're only going to look at a few verses. So let me get started. Anytime I go away and I miss a week of preaching, I feel like I got to like do double duty when I come back. So I got to, and if you're curious, like this, those are the notes I've written in my Bible on chapter 3. So I got a lot to talk about. So you ready? Yes. All right. So two of you are ready. The rest of you just kind of catch up. So verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers. Now, I love the fact that Paul says finally because you think he's going to wrap up, but he's a good preacher. And he says, finally, I got one more thing to say. And he goes on for two more chapters. That's kind of how I feel like this morning. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and it's safe for you. Here's what he's saying. He's saying rejoice, but what you rejoice in is vitally important. Now, he says rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances, rejoice in what's going on, rejoice in what's happening. Why? 
The reason why Paul says don't rejoice in circumstances is because what we know is this. Circumstances and events are transitory. God is not. So if we rejoice in circum, if we rejoice in happenings, if we rejoice in events, those things are going to pass. As good as it is, it's going to get bad. Right? Right? So he says rejoice in the Lord because everything else is transitory. If it's good now, it's going to get bad later. So rejoice in the Lord. The other reason why Paul says rejoice in the Lord is because honestly, some things are just not worth rejoicing over. Some things, if we're honest, some things are just bad. Right? Right? Some things are just ugly. There are some things in this world that are just wrong. There are some things in life that are just nasty. There are some things about life and that are just confusing, right? And there are some things that are not worth rejoicing over. It is foolishness to say rejoice for all things. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says rejoice in the Lord because he is above all things and above all all circumstances. And when I am in him, I can rise above the circumstances that are below me. So rejoice in the Lord. The difficulty with this idea of joy, when Paul says to rejoice in the Lord, is understanding what it is to rejoice. Being happy is half of what the biblical understanding of joy. Joy includes happiness, but that's not the totality of it. And if we rejoice joy, if we reduce joy to a smile or to exuberance, we're only scratching the surface of what joy really is. And honestly, smiling and being happy are the easiest parts of joy because smiling and being happy have to do with circumstances and good feels. So that's easy. But true joy, you ready for a definition of what joy is? Okay. Joy is to steadfastly arrest any tendency to murmur or complain. Joy is refusing to find fault with God's dealings and refusal to elicit the sympathy of others. Joy is to steadfastly arrest any tendency to murmur or complain, to refuse to find fault in God's dealings, and to refuse to elicit the sympathy of other people. Now, let me just go on my little, my little once a week social media rant. When I see, and I'm not on social media, I see effects of it, and what I see is the majority of social media, now probably not any of you, but other people, the results are two things. Either complaining or eliciting sympathy about one's experience, or causing others to complain inwardly about their situation because you're making yours out to look so great. And it seems to me that the essence of social media runs counter to the character of joy. The fact that the experts tell us that in America we're facing a 
mental health crisis and that our young people and our children are battling mental health issues and depression in record numbers tells me that we are far removed from the biblical character of joy and very near the cultural crisis exacerbated by social media. We have to be very careful. So if we're told to rejoice in the Lord, how do we cultivate joy? One of the ways we start to cultivate joy is to resist the temptation to murmur and complain. Now, I need to be very clear about this. Resisting the temptation to murmur or complain does not mean not acknowledging when things are bad. It doesn't mean not acknowledging when things are a bummer. It doesn't mean not acknowledging when things are absolutely downright upsetting. It is absolutely disingenuous to pretend as if everything is all good. We have to be very careful. When we disingenuously say, oh, it's all good. We're either being completely and totally fake or we're playing a martyr. Think about it. If everything is all good, if everything, oh, it's all good. That's just false and that's just a lie. Do you understand? Think about it. If things that are really quite bad are your all good, what does that say about you? It, it, does it mean that, that you've really never experienced anything bad? That's, that's pretty arrogant. Does it mean that you're so special that God has protected you from any ill? After all, it's all good. Really? What does it say about one's faith to have everything be it's all good? What that tells me is perhaps one has never learned to be grateful and joyful in the midst of what is all bad. If everything is always all good. Do you understand? Like it's authentic to say, you know what? Right now, this is terrible. Right now, this is bad. Right now, this just absolutely sucks. But I will rejoice. And I won't live in the land of murmuring and complaint. But the reality is, this is not good. Do you see how authentic that is? Yes. Rather than just playing the martyr of, no, it's all good. So part of cultivating joy is not to illegitimately say that what is bad is all good. Part of cultivating joy is to admit things are not all good. If things are all good, you don't have to cultivate joy. See, 
when we admit things are all good, but we still realize I'm not going to murmur. That while things are terrible, I won't stay in the attitude of complaint. I will acknowledge things are bad, but I'm not going to live in the land and the culture of complaint. To cultivate joy means that I will acknowledge things are bad, but I won't let the bad convince me that God is not still good. That's joy. It also means, to cultivate joy, that I will override my bumness, I came up with that word myself, you can, you can use it, with faith that somehow God will work it out for my good and his glory. Like, we have to acknowledge that things are not always all good. Because if things are always all good, what do I need God for? And we have to acknowledge that the only, there's a, there's a passage of Bible, a passage of scripture, and it's in the book of Romans. And every morning you need to make sure it's still there. It's in chapter 8, verse 28. And, and Romans 8, 28 says this. And we know that in all things, when Paul says we know that in all things, he's not talking about just all the good things. What he's, the implication is we know that in all the bad things, so things are not always all good because we know that in all the bad things, God works for the good. Why? Because some things are not all good. So we can't just disingenuously say, oh, it's all good because it's not. But God even works even the bad things for good. For those who love and are called to come. And when I can authentically say, this is bad, but I will rejoice because I know that my God in the midst of bad will work this bad for good. That cultivates joy. So we have to be very careful. When we blindly say, thinking that we're being joyful, that when something really sucks, Say, no, it's all good. Let's just be honest. It's not all good. But even when it's not, I will rejoice. Do you understand how biblical that is? You following me so far? And, 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 and Paul says, look, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and it's safe for you. What he's saying here is, look, I've told you to rejoice before. I've said it a whole bunch and it's no trouble for me to tell you again. And, and I don't mind continuing to tell you rejoice again. I'll say it rejoice because it's good for you to move me to tell you. What Paul knew is what I need is a constant reminder to rejoice. And so Paul reassures the Philippians. I don't mind reminding you over and over and over again that we got to rejoice. Because if we're not careful, we'll let the not good of this world override the cultivation of joy. That's verse 1. Let's go to verse 2 and 3. Now look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's what he's saying. Paul's whole, Paul's, like the theme of his life was salvation by faith because of God's grace. Not as a result of works of religious behavior. And Paul says over and over and over, we're right with God by faith because of his grace, 
not by our behavior and by obeying religious rules. And he would be, I mean, this was what he, this is the only thing he said over and over and over. And what would happen is all these, these, these religious people would come in after him and they would say, look, here's the thing. I know that what Paul's saying sounds good. And, and it sounds so simple, uh, but um, it's really not that simple. So what you need to do, yes, believe, but you also need to make sure that you're doing a few things. One, to prove that you believe, and two, to really be right with God. There, there's just a couple things. And one of the things in that context of what they were saying is, one of those things, you believe absolutely, but you also need to get circumcised. He says, you want to show your real sign of commitment, get circumcised. Now, now here's the thing. <clears throat> for a little baby that's just born, that's not that big a deal. But for an adult man who comes to faith, Can I get any amen? <laughs> That's a big deal. <laughs> like, well, we'll get time out. And what they were saying, look, if you want to prove, you want to prove that you're right with God and you want him, you want to really be right with him, then you go under the knife. Hmm. And Paul says, listen, true circumcision is when God has cut away the stuff from your heart, not from any part of your body. And when you believe in faith and worship God through the Spirit here, that's true circumcision. Don't you realize something? That there are some religious teachers, and, and you got to be careful because you've, you've probably been told this by somebody, who suggests that suffering equates with sainthood. you got to be very careful about that. The Bible doesn't necessarily suggest that. The Bible does say that saints may suffer, but it doesn't necessarily say just because you suffer, you're saintly. Now, here's the thing. If God calls you to suffer, you suffer as an obedient saint. But if you choose to suffer as your choice, then you do so as a willing subject and you do it with joy. But there's nothing inherently about suffering that makes one saintly. Now, it is true that Christians will suffer because Christ suffered. Philippians 1 talks about that. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. That God often calls, part of our call as Christ followers is to suffer for him. And if and when we are called to suffer, we suffer with joy because Christ is our model. But until Christ calls you to suffer, don't put that on yourself till he asks it of you. So here's what it looks like. If God calls you to a voluntary vow of poverty, then be joyfully poor. If God calls you to celibacy, then be joyfully single. But if God hasn't called you to poverty, you don't have to stay poor. Just because you choose to be poor doesn't mean you're a saint. Do you understand? Now listen, we've got all kind, there's all kinds of instructions in the Bible about wealth and about getting out of debt and staying out of debt and about building wealth. And the Stemples have led a great class called Financial Peace University that has helped a lot of people in the church get out of debt, stay out of debt, and build wealth. And we have incredible resources in this church. If you're in debt and Christ has not asked you to take a, <laughs> a vow of poverty, and you want to get out of debt and build wealth, we have incredible resources for you to help you do that. 
like we have absorbed all the expense so that you can get out of debt and build wealth biblically. All you got to do is take advantage of the resources that we have. Just let us know. We'll get you all those resources for free. We'll team you up with people to help you do that. Is that not a good deal? I'm amazed I don't see anybody writing this down like, okay, contact me. You need to be taking advantage of this. But here's the thing. If you choose to go without wealth, just because you're suffering doesn't make you saintly. And that's in essence what these people were telling the Philippians. I know you believe, but you need to suffer a little bit to really prove your faith, to make sure you're right with God. See, those who suggest that suffering makes one a saint, Paul has these words. Beware of the dogs. That's what he calls them. And this is an extreme term of contempt. And the Jews use this term against the Gentiles. So for Paul to use it in this context was profound. And Paul, Paul had no patience and no affection for the dogs of religion that would add anything to the simplicity of salvation. The moment anybody says, believe and, they're in the camp of the dogs, the religious dogs. Galatians 1.7, Paul calls people who say, believe and, people who add anything to the simplicity of salvation, he calls them those who pervert the gospel and who are inspired by the demons of hell. Anybody that says believe and, according to Paul, have perverted the gospel of Christ and are influenced demonically. That's some pretty strong language. Don't ever fall victim to the belief that your good behavior makes you more right with God. We're made right with God by what Jesus did on the cross, period. The belief that we do something to make us more right with God is a perversion of the simplistic gospel and it is inspired by demons. That's what Paul says. So, here's what I came up with thinking about this. Any act of obedience is to be done out of gratitude for salvation and as an act that displays your faith. Any act of obedience... Anything you do that's in line with Scripture, because the Bible says so, is not done so I will be more right with God. It's to be done out of gratitude for salvation and as an act that displays my faith. Any other intention for, for, for obedience is an act that perverts the gospel and is demonically influenced. Be very careful about how and why you choose to obey. Out of gratitude for salvation, and something that displays my faith. Paul says, beware of those evil workers, those that add obedience to faith for salvation. It, he dealt with this issue in Galatians, and, and in a couple of weeks, I'm going to start a study through the book of Galatians. It's going to be fun, because he'll deal with this issue again. And in Galatians 5.12, he says of those who are telling people to believe in them, he circumcised, he says, I wish they'd go ahead and just cut theirs all, all the way off. I think that's, you didn't laugh. I think that's funny. Like, like he has no patience for them whatsoever. He says, if they want to force circumcision or these acts of righteousness on you, I want them to go the full way with their knife and be done with it all for them. Paul had no confidence in the flesh. 
And he put no hope in the idea that my behavior makes me right with God for salvation. He says that idea, those works, righteousness, is rubbish. It's trash. Actually, he uses a Greek word called skubalon. And that word, he says, this idea that works, what we do, makes us more right with God is skubalon. That word skubalon means excrement or dung. That's a polite way of saying it. Saying it. Paul was using the vernacular. Do I need to say it for you in what the vernacular is? He's saying it's horse dookie. Like it's just, it's scubalon. And so I think that ought to be a new cuss word, like Christian cuss word. Because Christians, we just substitute the real cuss words for Christian cuss words, right? Like darn it, dang it, fudge. Those are Christian cuss words. I think scubalon ought to be our new one. Scubalon! You're walking a step, you go, ah, scubalon, son of a scubalon. You dang scubalite, that's a good one. I'm going to use that coaching this year on the sidelines. You ref, you're a scubalite. <laughs> that's funny. I, just, I think it's funny. You know, we're some about freshman football players, a bunch of scubalites. Huh, that's funny. He said, like, it, it needs, like, this works thing, it's all scuba. So just think about it for a minute. What's this say about religions that say, believe, and unless you're baptized, go ahead and believe, but unless you're married in this certain place, go ahead and believe, but unless you give a portion, we're going to check your deputies and make sure you are. All of that is scubalon. Anything added to faith alone is scubalon. And so Paul says, The way one is right with God is not through acts of the flesh, because that's all scubalon. The way one is right with God is only through faith. It's acts of the heart, not the act of actions. That's how one is right with God. Let me tell you that here's the difference. Here's how you know. I was thinking about this, and I thought of it this way. See, we can do acts of the body without the heart being involved. But we cannot do acts of the heart without the body being involved. I mean, it's, it's so simple to understand. Think about it in terms of relationships. You can be in a relationship with someone and they just do, they do their duty. I do what I'm supposed to do. And their hearts are not in it. We all know what that feels like, right? Every one of us does. Because we've been guilty of it. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. But my heart is not in. And, and there's a vast difference between that and saying, look, this is an overflow. And my body follows my heart. You, you know when someone's heart's in it, right? That's what Paul's saying. See, I've said this a lot. of We can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And Paul says all of this behavior stuff has got to come from like the body will follow your heart. So make it about the heart. See, a lot of religious people do religious things without the heart being in it. And Paul says that's scubalon stuff, man. See, for those of you who don't yet understand Christian obedience, and for those of you who haven't yet decided to follow Jesus with your life, and for those of you who are still investigating this whole Christianity thing, let me explain why Christian, why Christ followers do acts of obedience. 
that to you might seem like religious duty or religious behavior. Let me explain. See, what happens is for those of us with a right relationship with God through faith, our acts of obedience simply flow out of the devotion that's in our heart. They don't, we don't do it because we have to. They're just expressions of the devotion that's already grabbed our heart. So, so, so for those of us who follow Jesus out of faith, not duty, <clears throat> it's a joy to give. It's a joy to give financially. Not, not because we have to, but our giving is simply flows out of the devotion that's already in my heart. And it's fun. Do you know how much fun it is to believe in this God that I cannot outgive and out of devotion for this eternal, like, it's just a joy. I don't have to at all. But boy, there's joy in it. Do you, you know why, for those of us who follow Jesus out of, out of faith and have this relationship, do you know why it's a joy to come to church? Because the act of getting up and making time and getting myself ready, it simply flows out of the devotion that's already in my heart. That's why the psalmist say, I was happy when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord together. It's just an overflow of the devotion in my heart. Like, I don't have to. But man, it's joyful. Does it make sense? You're, you're tracking with me? And so that's why Paul could say, rejoice. Because your salvation is not contingent upon performance. That's why he says, rejoice. Because your acts of obedience are not needed for salvation. They're just expressions of faith and love. So rejoice. That's why he says rejoice. Because our home is not of this world. And this is where he wraps up chapter 3 and verse 20. He says our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, we need to appreciate when he says our citizenship is in heaven, what, what that meant to the Philippians to whom he was writing. See, the Philippians in Philippi greatly valued their Roman citizenship. This was a big deal. And just as the Philippians considered themselves in Philippi as citizens of Rome, because they had Roman citizenship, they understood they were under Roman law and Roman protection and Roman customs. Even though they were living far from Rome, they were Roman citizens. And so Paul says Christians should consider themselves citizens of heaven, even though they're living far from it at the moment. And so we have to understand, if Paul says you are now citizens of heaven, what does it mean to be a citizen? See, what it, our citizenship in heaven means this, that we have our home in heaven, and here on earth, we're a colony of heaven's citizens. we got to get this straight. We're a colony of heaven's citizens. See, Paul says, you Roman citizens in Philippi, you've never forgotten that you belong to Rome. And he says, now you Christians must never forget that you belong to heaven. That's your citizenship. And so what he says is that our behavior, our actions must match our citizenship. There are expectations of citizens of the land. And Paul's saying you are citizens of heaven, and so your actions must match your citizenship. If we are citizens, think about it for a moment, just put your thinking cap on. If we're citizens of heaven, that means we're aliens on earth. We gotta get this straight. Would you agree with me that foreigners are distinct from citizens as long as they're in foreign land. They're different, right? If you want to take it out of the spiritual world, put it in the, in, in the world of, of, of nations. 
foreigners are different than citizens. And Paul's saying, you're citizens of heaven, you're not citizens of earth. And as such, Christians must be so marked by their heavenly citizenship that they're noticed as being different. Foreigners here. Now, there's been a lot of talk about patriotism lately, especially after the last two years, especially come off of 4th of July. And, and I guarantee you, I, I said this before, our, part of our problem is we live in these echo chambers, and the only thing we hear is what we say. And everything online, we read what we already believe, and we don't understand what the other side's saying, whether it's on the right or the left. We just live in these echo chambers. And I guarantee you, every, each political party, I'm talking about the right and the left, each feel more patriotic than the other. They each do. And, and both political parties feel like they are the true Americans and, and real citizens. Michelle and I have been in Boston. We were in Boston for the 4th. And I'm telling you this, man. Bostonians, man, they are serious about the 4th of July. It's awesome. It is awesome. I, everybody in America needs to go to Boston for the 4th of July. They, they do it right. And it was so, it was, it's my, new, it's my favorite city, I think. Boston, my favorite. I mean, second to the ranchos. Uh, but, but it is, it, it is still above Chowchilla. So it, it's right there. Like, it's amazing. And they're serious about patriotism and being American. It wasn't politicized. It was, it was, just, it was a really neat expression. Independence Day, the founding fathers, sons of liberty. And, and there's a lot of talk about what it is to be proud of our American citizenship. And I understand all of that. Believe me, I do. Through the generations of the Roth family, we've had men fight in every major war our country's been in, going back to the revolution. So I, I get it. But as much as we are patriots of this land and this soil, Paul's saying that Christians ought to be more heavenly patriotic. Because that's our citizenship. And I cannot, I guess I can. I guess I just have to ask a question. Why do our earthly bonds to government and citizenship get more energy and more passion from Christ followers than our heavenly home and heavenly citizenship. I don't understand that. Do you know what a patriot is? <laughs> no, I saw the movie. A patriot is a person who vigorously supports their country and is prepared to defend it against enemies or detractors, right? Right? That's a patriot. Right? So here's what Paul's saying. Be a patriot of heaven. You know what patriotic is? Man, we experienced it in Boston. It was beautiful. Having or expressing devotion to and vigorous support of one's country. Paul's saying that's fine. Why don't you be patriotic about heaven citizenship? That's what he's saying. He says, you want to talk about a citizen? You know what citizenship is, don't you? Any native or naturalized person who owe allegiance to their government and from their government is entitled to receive protection. So Paul says, that's great. But remember, <laughs> your true citizenship is of heaven above all else. 
And everything after that is secondary at best. And so let's realize the implications as I close this message. As an alien in a foreign land, whether we talk spiritually or on this globe, aliens should seek, should seek to do good works in the land they're currently living in. Would you agree? Absolutely. And aliens should not be so focused on storing up riches in the land they're in because they're going to leave it anyway. But as, if you're a Christ follower, we have to understand this, that as citizens of heaven, we have responsibilities as citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, we're under the government of heaven, above all else. And as citizens of heaven, we share in heaven's honors, above all else. And as citizens of heaven, we have the property rights of heaven that is our inheritance where we do store up treasures. And as citizens of heaven, we experience the pleasures of heaven, even in foreign territory. And as citizens of heaven, we love heaven more than earth and feel more attached there than here so we can let go of earthly bonds more easily because we're citizens there. And as citizens of heaven, we keep in constant communication with our native home and with the king of that land. Because we're citizens there. And because we're citizens there, Paul says, rejoice. Don't live in moments of murmur. Paul says, remember that God works all things, even the bad things, for our good and his glory. So rejoice. Paul says, rejoice that we're right with God by faith. In spite of what we've done, in advance of anything that we do, rejoice. Paul says rejoice because our home there is better than the land here. Because we're citizens there. So Paul says rejoice. I'll say it again, rejoice. It's no problem for me to say it over and over and over. And it's good for you to be reminded, Paul says, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. You understand? So, let's readjust our focus and cultivate joy. Won't you pray with me? Father, I thank you that we don't have to get tied up, worked up, bound up like citizens of this world. I thank you that you loose us, that you free us to be citizens of heaven. Hear our prayer right now, Father. If you have a relationship with Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. So rejoice. And I would encourage you in this moment to cultivate joy. And in prayer between you and God, say, Father, I choose to rejoice. Help me not live in the land of complaint. Help me believe that even when things are bad, you will work it for your good 
and my joy. Help me, help me rejoice in the fact that I don't have to work for salvation. Help me rejoice in the fact, Jesus, that you've already done it. And help me rejoice in the fact that this land is not my home. Tell them, as soon as you're ready, God, I'm ready. And I rejoice at my home going. Now, if you've not accepted Jesus as your Savior, in this spirit of prayer, just listen for a moment. If you're not attached to Him, you cannot be filled with joy. And so I'd encourage you in this moment, with a great authenticity, between you and God, say, God, I don't understand all of this. But what I realize is what I'm hearing makes more sense and it's easier than what I've been trying. And so as much as I know how, I want to follow you. Forgive me for doing life without you. As much as I know how, I give myself to you. As a result of that, give me joy that comes from you. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for how profoundly simple and applicable it is. Thank you for helping us understand it. God, you are the great Father above all things. Jesus, you are our rescuer and our deliverer. Holy Spirit, you are the one that resides within your people. Give us joy and help us to rejoice. In your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Let's sing. Amen.